listening to Sound and Process. I'm Dan Dirks. Thank you so much for joining me. Sound and Process is an exploration of the artists of lines. Come join the conversation at LLLLLLLL.co. That's ADELS.co. There's something about Marcus Fisher's music that fits this season. After his last episode, a lot of listeners shared how the snowstorms that they were homebound by were the perfect backdrop to Marcus's reflections. As another year closes, I'm so excited to share another conversation with this wonderful artist. This isn't something I expected, but Marcus has been really giving of his time, and it was his suggestion to do a follow-up episode. So in the spirit of the season, I am very thankful to have gotten to know him better over the last year. Since episode 5, Marcus has been, for lack of a much better word, busy. He completed the Rauschenberg residency, released the follow-up to 2010's Monocoastal, Loss, which is absolutely stunning. He established an experimental power trio with Paul Dickow and William Selman called Wildcard, which toured with High Plains at the end of this past summer. He's been performing with Lisa Schoenberg's secret drum band. He recorded another collaboration with 12 Case Taylor Dupree called Lowlands, and I'm sure I'm missing something. This episode digs beyond his output as an artist to explore the internal processes that inform his approach. As always, the music from each of these projects and partnerships weaves throughout the episode, which can all be purchased as digital or characteristically breathtaking physical objects on Bandcamp. All right, grab a warm cup of tea. Let's dive in. This is Sound and Process with Marcus Fisher. start with kind of unpacking the Rauschenberg residency because that was kind of where we left off on the last episode. Right, because it was just before the end of the year. And so I wrapped up all the Portland things that I needed to do and then headed out for Florida. And the whole thing was kind of crazy because we had a unseasonably snowy and icy winter. So I actually like didn't even know if I was going to be able to leave when I was supposed to. So, um, and I live on a pretty steep hill and so I had all my stuff and like our hill was completely iced over. And so I called a taxi the night before I was like, Oh, can you come pick me up? I live on this really steep hill. Oh yeah, no problem. And so I was all ready at like four in the morning or whatever it was. And I hear this van come rumbling down the hill. I was like, okay, great. And I opened my front door just to see the guy sliding past my house (laughs) and down to the next street a couple houses down so it was like half a block away down this hill and he called me and he's like yeah i don't know i can try to take another pass at it but (laughs) we'll see and i was like no and so i basically like could have ridden my um equipment and luggage down the hill like a toboggan um to get to him but (laughs) yeah i finally made it to florida and met uh, a bunch of the other artists at the airport, including um, Pamela Z, who's another uh, West Coast artist. Yeah. She's from the Bay Area. And then um, basically the whole crew of artists that were coming from New York all flew together. And they had a pretty harrowing day as well, of long delays and everything. But um, yeah, and we got to the facility. They showed us our rooms. And I kind of just like walked around to explore um, that night before going to bed. And... Um, really couldn't get a good idea of like the scale of the place until the next morning when we had our orientation and tour and I was just blown away. Like it's like 
I had heard, you know, about it and looked at photos online and there was a little uh, orientation video that the facilities guy sent out, but it really didn't prepare me for how amazing like the space actually was like acres of land and beautifully maintained grounds. And yeah, it was pretty phenomenal. And the staff was really friendly and wonderful as well. And they wound up giving me um, Rauschenberg's main studio as my workspace. So it was like, at first I was kind of like, I don't know, because it was, it's a really public kind of place because the director of the residency and um, the resident coordinator have their office right off of that main space. And there's a digital imaging lab right off of that space and a little kitchen. So I was kind of in the middle of everything, but in retrospect, I really enjoyed it because I got to see a lot more people and interact with more people than I would have if I had one of the more remote um, studios. Yeah. So that was actually a good thing. I mean, in the end, but it really allowed me to kind of stretch out and work with the sound of the space itself, which was very reverberant. That space seemed um, huge in the pictures that you It was enormous. Yeah. It's like a parking garage with like <laughs> I mean it has a it has a freight elevator that was specked out to be able to lift a car up to the second floor because um, Rauschenberg did these um, custom painted cars uh, as some of his work so yeah that was kind of incredible and it had this wonderful uh, like epoxied white floor that would just like um yeah white walls and a catwalk that went over like it was yeah it was ridiculous so and a grand piano as well so that was like pretty amazing Private prisons. The future. Fear is a constant state. The environment. You uh, pretty quickly turned around uh, words of concern working with some of the other artists. Yeah, that was great. It was like, I think we all kind of realized after being there and the inauguration was looming that the world that we entered into the um, residency in was going to be a very different world than it would be when we left. And that was a kind of like frightening, um, eye-opening thing, especially like right after the inauguration when the Muslim travel ban and, you know, just like everything that was coming, it was like the first week was just ridiculously stacked with just terrible news headline after terrible news headline. And um, I think a lot of us really bonded over that um right before the inauguration i just was trying to think of like a way to kind of deal with all the anxiety and the um concern that we were having and so i kind of sent a message out to everybody being like hey i'm gonna i want to record people's voices anyone who wants to contribute and just you know list your concerns and almost all the artists took me up on it including some of the staff at the residency, which was pretty great. So um, I wound up um, just setting up a little recording booth and then editing down um, what everybody said. And so it's like two people said the same thing or, or more. I would kind of layer those voices on top of one another. So that's why you get like a kind of chorus effect when people say like the environment. And it, 
I wound up setting it up as a three minute long tape loop in that space and just kind of let it play throughout inauguration day while a lot of us were trying to avoid um, looking looking at the news or anything. And it was like it turned the space into, you know, a pretty solemn place and people would just come by and spend a little bit of time listening to the voices, you know, move on or like have little quiet conversations in the room. And um, yeah, I just let it play throughout that entire day. And then I brought it back in a slightly different form the last week of the residency when we had a open house where members of the community came in to check out what everybody had done. And I'd rigged up a telephone receiver so that people could like pick up the phone and listen to those voices. Isolationism. Our health system. Deregulation. Divides. Education. 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 It was a really nice way to kind of get introduced to one another and start that kind of collaboration, which was uh, pretty great because I wound up um, collaborating with quite a few of the artists in different capacities, like either just with audio assistance or other projects. I did a performance with one of the artists, um, David Newman, who's like a really brilliant dancer, choreographer, director. Um, and he and I did a piece uh, for that open house as well, where I played um, guitar and modular synth and accompanied a piece that he had been working on kind of based on TED Talks and the universe and mixing that with some chance operations and movement. So it was it was a really great thing. Hopefully he and I get a chance to work on something again in the future because I really enjoyed it. areas or disciplines were you able to explore or enhance through the residency? Really, the number one thing that I tried to do, like I think we talked about um, in the last interview, was that I wanted to try to finish up recording an album that I was working on and actually wound up basically completing that album plus a new collaboration with Taylor Dupree. And then I got some time to get into doing some printmaking again, which I had something that I used to do a lot of and I really enjoy, but it had been just a long time. So I made some screens and um, did some lithography demos. And then I got really into casting brass, like sand casting. I made a copy of a aluminum tuning fork that I had and I copied it in brass. Hmm. And that was like, Great. You know, they, they hadn't done metal casting at um, the residency yet in, in the sand. And so they were excited to try it, too. So I wound up making a copy of that copy hmm. and then a copy of the other co- the copy. And I just took it down the lane and started um, really getting into this idea of like generations and the loss of detail, you know, that, that winds up happening um, in the way that we like the objects inherit flaws from the previous generation. Mm. I wound up making like 28 in all, which was like, it kind of became a joke. Like people were just like, you're making more tuning forks. So I was like, yeah, I can keep doing this all day. It's pretty insane. funny. But my intent is to um, try to record a piece of music uh, with using those tuning forks as the source material and then um, try to turn it into some sort of um, sound installation, so where I could display the, the forks plus um, have, you know, these like basically sine wave um, compositions from those tuning forks. Mm-hmm. 
moving into the album. When we spoke last, you had landed on this theme of loss, and you said that it kind of felt like you had painted yourself into a corner a little bit because you wanted it to be so meaningful um, because of the personal resonances and just because you wanted to get this project done and, and you felt like it had taken a good amount of time so far. Um, so how did that shape uh, once you got to the residency? So I wound up bringing 12 to 14 um, tracks that were in various stages of completion with me. And that was like what I started with when I, I got there. And, um, you know, I, I kind of tend to like work on something for a while and like abandon it and then work on something else come back to it and like give it some time. And so I really, some of those tracks I hadn't opened up since like 2014 or <laughs> 2012 even. And like, so some were pretty old. And so I wound up being able to find parts in all of those that still kind of resonated with me. And then I kind of just dug deeper into it and sort of started to explore more about what loss really was, you know? And so I, um, I kind of landed on it being something that changes, has changed and isn't coming back or isn't, you know, you can't revert to a previous state. And I tried to kind of manifest that in a physical way. Um, and this was all like, I mean, I was thinking about all different kinds of loss. Like this is coming out of like after the election and, you know, all these things like the changing state of the country, you know, there's all different kinds of loss and not just focused around death. And it was um, through that and through like my um, tape loop process that I wind up working with a lot is that I kind of wanted to do try a lot of more sound on sound looping with every layer that you add. The previous layer kind of gets wiped out a little bit and some things persist, um, you know, through multiple passes, multiple generations. And so I would get, you know, one chance at getting something right. And then it would be, you know, gone again. And so you can hear it kind of all over the record. There's like little melodies that get played and then you hear them a little bit differently the next time around. And then there's, you know, these little micro melodies and micro rhythms that wind up coming up from these uh, odd length tape loops that were, I was recording on and um, sometimes doing things with having two tape machines on the same loop, you know, one playing back, one recording. So I'd wind up kind of playing a little duet with myself that was delayed by um, however many feet of tape were in between the two mm -hmm. machines. And so I kind of just like really explored that. And then also the natural reverb of the studio. Like there isn't very much um, fake reverb on the record in the end. It's um, primarily either reverb that was captured live as I was recording in the studio or I was playing something back over speakers and re-recording it because it was just like such a huge cavernous reverb that was like so I was mixing in that room as well which was kind of crazy because then I it was hard to tell what was like on the record and what was you know just in the space unless I put on headphones and so um I kind of just went with it rather than trying to like build a little dampened room in the space and mix very accurately I just wound up kind of embracing that that echo you weren't going to get away from it and so um in the end I really I really 
found it to be beautiful. And I took like an impulse response in the room um, so that I could try to use a convolution reverb version of it once I got home. And I tried and it just doesn't sound right. It's totally <laughs> fake, but um, it was such, it's just such a amazing echoey space that I just wanted to try to take a little bit of that home with me. And in some ways I did, but. then you came in with digital files. Yeah. Uh -huh. Was it just like tracking single instruments? Was it tracking whole files and to tape? It was kind of, it's kind of a mix of a lot of different things. Some tracks were almost 100% recorded at the residency and some were maybe I just took one sound that I had brought with me out of a track and worked on that there and then others like I took something that was like a seed and I re-recorded it maybe on the piano in that space or there was a creaky old acoustic guitar um in the studio there that I wound up using quite a bit and so yeah I mean I wound up bringing a ton of stuff with me like both gear wise and material wise and like I wound up using very little of it and just kind of focusing on stripping everything back and so mm. I mean like we talked about last time like that editing process is like kind of laborious for me so <laughs> it's almost better if I don't um, record too much material because then that just means more editing for me but yeah I mean almost all of the tracks I mean actually I think 100% had at least some tape or tape looping uh, components and yeah some of the tracks at least some aspects of them were started in like 2012. Wow. I wound up naming all of my um, working files by the date that they were started. I kind of go like year, month, day, and then some sort of um, description of whatever it is. So yeah, I mean, that just, yeah, that just shows how long it took <laughs> to get it done. <laughs> Not that I was working on it nonstop for that long, but it's just like right. that process of um, starting and finishing something is like not always the easiest for me. reading the film variations intro and i think mark nailed it with its lovely music with an undercurrent of dread and it's like the the low frequencies on those two tracks like uh, murmurations and loss just hit so hard without overpowering so i was wondering about that mixing process and that production process like did you work with taylor on doing that how much of his thumbprint is a part of that and and how much of that is uh yeah decisions just made purely in that same space the low frequency is i mean that's like it was there but that's 100 percent uh editorial call on taylor's part to um really bring that out because um yeah i mean if you listen to the pre-mastered version and the master version he really was able to somehow pull those low frequencies out of the sludge <laughs> It winds up like my stuff winds up being so low mid range, like 
always. And it's just like, there's not never anything that's super high and usually not much that's super low, except, I mean, live, sometimes I'm using like the OP one to like, um, play like kind of like bass, sub bass kind of things. And he told me when he listened to those, um, and started mastering it. He's like, oh, I pulled up the low. Let me let me know what you think. And I was just like, holy shit. Because it was like, yeah, it, it does. Um, I mean, it really like changes the tone um, quite a bit from like the way that I recorded it. But it was exactly the right thing to do. You know, it's just like he is. Yeah. I mean, his ear is, is incredible. And I, I really trust his the calls that he makes uh, when mastering. And like, like he said before, you know, his mastering process is not transparent um and i'm totally fine with that you know and it's like at the same time he if i asked him to change something he would never like fight me on it like he just he has the the tools to um be able to pull these things off and it's like i don't really even know what like i mean those mastering tools are like uh black magic to me and (laughs) (laughs) it's just like i think if i just were to use a just a regular eq to try to do that it just would just wind up not really sounding as effective but but the mix overall i feel like um i spent a lot of time mixing it and going back over it and making tweaks and yeah i mean i'm kind of amazed that in that acoustically imperfect space that the mix wound up as balanced as it did maybe he has different opinions on that but for me i was just like i'm like oh you know like I'd be, I'd take some, I'd take my computer back to the house that I was staying in and listen to it on headphones or whatever, rather than on the speakers in the space. And it was like, still felt pretty good. Um, So yeah, who knows? I mean, I'm sure that acoustic treatment makes all the difference in certain situations. And that one was just not necessarily one of them. Like... Following the thread of, of Taylor, because you also uh, sent me over a track from a newer collaboration that you're doing with him, uh, to talk a little bit more about the collaborative process of, of working with him when you guys are performing together and when you're you know building an album together and it's not um, just a, a mix and master relationship, but um, what does that collaboration mean to you? A lot of it kind of stems from how like we kind of met like i had known um 12k's work for quite a while and picked up random releases and it was always one of those things where like my wife and i would be record shopping and looking through cd bins and and she'd be like oh this is a really beautiful album cover i'd be like oh yeah that the graphic design of that label is so great and like you know he just has this like very uncompromising um vision of you know what 12k is like from very early on like i think there was only a few random releases that he did that weren't kind of this templatized um fashion that he wound up using for his albums and um so you know i'd buy taylor's albums throughout the years and i think that when i i got northern and that was the one that i like i first really like like some of the more straightforward electronic stuff like i it was like interesting to me, but it wasn't like when he, he released Northern, I was just like, Oh, you know, it's like, it's this organic, you know, mixed with 
electronic stuff that I had really been, that was the kind, the kind of stuff that I had been working on too. And like to see the way that he did it was like pretty fascinating, like, you know, like kind of found sound sort of stuff or like small repeating patterns, like with some more organic elements. And that release really resonated with me. And then I think it was around the same time that I started that dust breeding project. And when I finished that, um, unbeknownst to me, uh, Taylor had been following it the whole time. And he um, sent me an email like on the last installment of the year. And he's like, oh, I want to let you know that I really enjoyed what you're doing this year. And I'm going to be sad, you know, that it's that it, I'm sad that it's over and hopefully we get to work on something sometime. And I was kind of like, what? Like, I had no idea that I was even on like his radar, like, you know, and that was like a label that I had respected for years. So he and I kind of got to talking and um, after a while he was kind of like, oh, you know, if you want to try to submit something um, to 12K to be released, uh, let me know, you know? And like, so that is what wound up being Monocoastal. So I sent him... um, you know, he gave me a, a little window. He's like, oh, if you can send me something by this date. And so I I wound up recording Monocoastal and sent him that. And he was, you know, super happy with it. And after it came out and it sold out pretty quickly, like went out of print. And so then he and I started talking again. He's like, well, we should do a collaboration. You know, and I think that we were originally planning on doing something like just like a one track thing that we would give away for free. And so I recorded some stuff at home and he recorded some stuff at his house and he was kind of like, yeah, like this isn't really my favorite way of working. You should just come out um, to New York sometime for some, you know, a couple days and we'll do something. So I wound up um, going out to New York and we had never met in person before. And here I was going to stay, spend like five or six days at his house. <laughs> and uh, which, I mean, it could have gone horribly wrong. And like <laughs> I took a red eye flight and he picked me up at like five in the morning at JFK and right off the bat, like, even though I was like sleep deprived because I can never sleep well in planes and he barely got any sleep the night before because he still had his two kids and one was still pretty young at the time. But we hit it off right away. And like we have a pretty similar, like dry sense of humor about some things. And um, we just got to talking and I don't think we even played music until fairly late that night. Um and that's what wound up being in a place of such graceful shapes, which was that box set thing that we did. So we both had interest in photography and, you know, music and this and that. And we just like wound up having a lot in common. And so um, through the years, we've just found opportunities to work together, play together or or record and always doing it in person. And this album, Lowlands, that we finished is the first one where we actually did most of it separately. And I think we both wholeheartedly agree that that's not the gre- the best way to work for us. <laughs> I mean, in the end, I think that the album turned out great, but um, it just like, it's just not like, that's just not the way that we should work together in the future. And so it was sort of funny, like taking that very first failed attempt at collaboration, <laughs> you know, we should have, that should have been a lesson to us, but we had a deadline and it really wasn't going to work for us to do, be in the same place at the same time. Yeah. Like some of the tracks actually were ones that we started in Poundridge uh, when I went out there another time. And some of those contained field recordings that we made in Iceland together. And then the rest of it was all um, stuff that we did 
through correspondence. He would send me a track and then I would send him a track and then we'd kind of respond to each other's tracks. And yeah, and so, I mean, it was just slow, but uh, it worked out. see as your influence on him and the way that he works? Um, I mean, I think that if you listen to Twine, that's one of those situations where, um, I mean, we did that at my studio using all of my instruments and then my tape recorders or whatever. So it winds up sounding maybe a little bit more like just me than like him, even though we're both playing instruments, like at least into my ears, because like I'm familiar with all of those sounds. But um, I think we wind up kind of changing our processes through conversation. You know, like we would have these talks about gear and like it turned out that we had like a lot of the same gear, pedals and whatever. And then we wind up playing these shows together where you we'd set up face-to-face and it would almost look like a mirror was put between us (laughs) (laughs) which is a couple of pieces were different and like it was just like this funny thing but I think that how we approach things are so different but I think that I mean it's hard for me to say how what my influence has been on him but maybe like the more um tape loopy stuff and things like that but I think that we definitely influence one another just yeah based on through our conversations and like our enthusiasm for process or tools like it's kind of like yeah we can like kind of nerd out on the same things like the same cameras and the same synthesizer modules and like I think it kind of and then like that we're always looking for opportunities to work with one another too like um yeah I don't know it's really it's a that's a difficult question secret drum band uh, that's got to be thrilling yeah it's kind of like working a different part of my brain too like it's like it's been a long time since i've played like in a band band that's like things are set and they go for a certain amount of time and then they change to the next part and like you know like the only other band that i've been in recently has been uh, unrecognizable now which we there were some songs early on that we played but primarily it's just been improvisation so i've been working as an improviser for the last 15 to 17 years like or something so that's been kind of a challenge for me but one that's like been interesting and so i'm playing like guitar process through modular which is similar to my normal um method but i get to play through a guitar amp and loudly you know it's just (laughs) like that's something i had sort of been craving 
after um, Trump won that election, um, I was just like, I just want to play drums again. Like, I just want to play, or if not drums, I want to play guitar really loud. Like, it just felt like, you know, that that was the thing that I needed to do at that time. And so um, not like it that it's aggressive music or whatever, but there was some sort of catharsis that goes along with um, playing loud music uh, with groups of people. To me, like, that's like community, you know? I mean, maybe it's just nostalgic for me. I don't know, but um, it, it feels right, you know, when, when you're in a certain mindset. Um, Lisa, who's sort of like the mastermind of the band, like she wrote most of the songs and like her, um, yeah, she's got, you know, charts for me that have like different cues and, and this and that. And then for everybody else, it's like um, full on, you know, notated drum music. So what's kind of the qualitative like instruction um, you know, she'll be like, here, this section, you know, it builds to this part or listen for Sarah's drum part or, you know, this hi-hat thing. And then you bring in this other thing. And like, I'm using a lot of samples too, that I'm playing back, like mostly field recordings. So there's like, bring in the birds here. And then the, you know, the white noise kind of part here. And like, it's, um, multiple things at once, you know, not, not only like doing the guitar and, and pedals and stuff, but then also triggering samples and changing the volumes of things and repatching a little bit between songs. So it's like, I'm trying to keep that repatching to a minimum because that's like difficult and time consuming. But um, thank goodness for um, newer digital modules that have preset storage, which probably kind of flies in the face of the whole modular thing. But like, yeah. it's definitely super helpful to be able to like name the setting of something by the name of a song and just like recall it in an instant so i'd assume the er301 is kind of at the heart of all the sampling stuff yeah it's doing sample playback and then some looping uh guitar manipulation stuff and then a lot of the rest of it is um different filters and then the intelligel rainmaker um yeah, because I can like program a bunch of different, um, you know, delays with different pitch values and, and all that and, and tempo settings. So like I can get it, it'll be roughly in the tempo that the song is in. And then I can kind of tap it out to um, get it right on based on whoever clicks in or whenever something starts. So, yeah, and I'm using the Monome Arc to control the 301. Mm -hmm. Those two pair really well with one another, like through the Ansible module having, you know, four CV outs and four gate outs. And the 301 has like so many inputs and they're all, you know, assignable. So I can do all kinds of stuff like um, scrubbing samples and creating really dynamic LFOs um, just by spinning the, the knobs on the arc. So that's like something that's been pretty great in um, the wildcard stuff that I've been doing with Paul Dickow and Bill Selman, like that thing has been pretty um, indispensable. love to hear more about where that project uh, lands in, in comparison to everything else uh, that you're doing and, and what's been challenging about it and what's been rewarding. Yeah, I, I, 
the big one for me was I, I really didn't want it to sound like three guys noodling on modular synthesizers. Like that kind of <laughs> sounds like the last thing that I want to a listen to and b be involved in. <laughs> like <laughs> it just like just like oh I don't I mean it's like the equivalent of like you know three different people at Guitar Center all shredding and not like listening to one another <laughs> like that. If there could be a synthesizer equivalent like that was my fear like it's just like you know and so um we got together a couple times um and just kind of did some you know free running improvisation and there were definitely some seeds in there that were interesting and so with each subsequent time that we've got together we've kind of tried to hone that a little bit more and um i brought over just a little you know pittsburgh 48 um skiff that had some tools in it like a clock and a clock divider you know and some lfos and some other stuff and that was sort of like a central thing that we could all kind of patch into and even if we're not doing like full-on rhythmic drum kind of stuff like at least we kind of still are working off the same bass tempo even if it's like you know, somebody's taking the output from the, you know, two out from the clock divider or someone's taking the eight or the seven or something like at least there's some sort of something linking it together. And that seemed to be pretty helpful. And then also sort of dividing the roles a little. We've tried that like somebody is doing the baseline and somebody's doing like texture. And so it's it's just been a learning experience for us. But I think we've all like played live music enough that we know you know when to play it safe and when to take chances one of the larger regrets out of the last conversation that we had was not digging deep enough into the way that you improvise and the headspace and the uh, the analysis that goes on because so much of your work is improvisational and we kind of focused on these uh, outputs uh, rather than the the process itself um, and that's something that I kept wondering about I mean I think that like it all comes down to listening in a way and like you know and knowing your tools so it's like if I feel competent with the tools that I have with me, I can take chances and basically be able to predict the results. And so I try to strike a balance between that and taking chances and having unpredictable results. And so I think I tend to build up a bed of sound from the known elements. And then after I feel like I'm in a good space, I can start experimenting a little bit more, Um, at least in live performance. That's kind of the way that I do it. And I think Ted uh, Ladaris, the Ure, had said before that like, oh, there's always a moment, you know, in your sets where it seems like something could fall apart and then it, it you we wind up pulling it <laughs> off. And so, and to me, I'm just like, oh, wow, you like, you can hear that? Like, that's, that's kind of bad. But like, if it works out, then that's great. But um, I don't know, like, I, I feel like I'll, I'll start something and then, start taking chances while um, still listening to the results and making adjustments, you know, as I go. And so, I mean, like one situation was I played, there's a drum shop in town called Revival Drums. 
and this uh, group in Portland that's focused on improvisational music called Creative Music Guild would put on these Wednesday night shows at this drum shop and they invited me to perform. And there is basically a wall of snare drums. <laughs> and, you know, I was kind of like playing something and like the snare drums were rattling, you know, like you, every time you hit a certain frequency, the snare drums were started, started rattling. And so like, rather than like avoiding that frequency, I kind of sought it out and wound up being able to kind of create this slow, like a tremolo kind of wave that would just like bring that frequency up and bring it back down. And so that all the snare drums in the room would start kind of rattling in this cascading effect. <laughs> and like, that was like such a treat for, for me at the time, just like, Oh yeah. You know, it's like to be able to turn something that would be like super annoying, you know, on one hand into something that like, like being able to really play the room that was like, fantastic like I really enjoyed that and I think that that's one of those things where it's like I took a chance on it it could have totally fallen flat on its face but in reality that was like my favorite part of that set and I really don't remember much else from that night other than <laughs> like being able to play the wall of snare drums which was just pretty great So I'm wondering, when you start to feel something going awry, how do you make your choices to turn those around? Have you ever had a complete disaster? I think the only complete disaster that I've had was long time ago when I was doing uh, like laptop music and like it was like a crash or something, you know, and that like that only happened to me once and it was kind of mortifying. You know, because it's like, even if I had live instruments, if it's all ringing through the computer, like, and it crashes, th there is no sound. You know, it's like it yeah. can't make any more sound. But um, but in recent years, I mean, other than just like out of control feedback from like a, a microphone or something, um, I haven't had like a total disaster. But I, I know when things like start going awry, like if I wind up like playing wrong note, like one that's like terribly wrong. Um, and it's captured into a loop and then it keeps coming back around, you know? It's like, <laughs> that's one of those situations where you just have to like either make the choice to like keep going with it and like maybe that just means that you've changed the key of the songs. You need to add more of that, you know, in or something. Or you kind of have to be very adept at fading certain things out while bringing other things up. And I think it's those kind of things where it's like, yeah, there's a decision-making process and you know, you don't have that long to um, kind of decide which direction it's going to be and go with it. And I think that that's just only, I mean, it's like, it depends on the situation, really. And you just have to be able to, um, you know, make those choices and, and go with it. I mean, one of the worst into best examples of that I can think of was years and years ago, I was playing in Boston with um, Taylor and Simon Scott and Simon he's the drummer in Slow Dive and then he also makes um, ambient electronic music and he's done stuff for 12k and for Touch and a bunch of other labels but he was playing this show and he it was like he was using a borrowed um, amplifier 
and it was started picking up like the radio, <laughs> like like really badly. Like there was like uh, advertisement for um, funeral services that was like playing loudly through the amp, just based on like the guitar being plugged in and some grounding thing. And then a bunch of his um, electronics weren't working right. And it was just like, he wasn't that far into his set where he couldn't have just stopped and like sorted everything out and then restarted. Like it totally could have happened, but he kind of stuck with it. And like Taylor and I were both sitting in the audience kind of cringing. Like this is just like, oh God, like we feel so bad for him. Like there was just like thing after thing was going wrong. And you could see that he was getting visually frustrated. Like, like I thought that he was just moments from just like flipping the table over and like leaving. Cause it was just like, I mean, it was, it was hard to watch, really hard to watch. And then he kind of had that, like, you could see it on his face, had that like fuck it moment. And he just took it in a different direction. And he like had this little contact mic and he, um, plugged it through like some of his pedals and then into his max patch and he just started like singing into the contact mic because so he abandoned the guitar completely and like he was running his vocals through what his guitar would normally be rooted through like on his um patch and it turned into just like the most beautiful pastoral ambient stuff that i've ever seen live and he just like completely turned it around like it was just like it was like disaster show into like one of the best performances that I've ever seen. I mean, like I think Taylor and I still talk about that. Like it's just like he just did it, you know, and like like it, it gives me goosebumps thinking about that and like makes my palms sweaty at the same time because it was like so nerve wracking. I've never really tried to replicate an album like in a live setting and I mean maybe because my processes are so different between the two but I've like kind of recycled samples from time to time but the idea of trying to like do something like to represent an album in a live performance is sort of frightening and maybe not that interesting a concept to me so hopefully that's not what anyone's expecting um but yeah I mean that's the other thing it's like people Probably, like if you have a record out, they probably expect it to sound like the record if they come to see you live. And <laughs> hopefully it's not disappointing if it doesn't, but yeah, it's hard to say. I think that this year has been not only a year of finishing things that I started, but also um, doing more with other people than I'm doing by myself, which is like kind of nice. Like I haven't played a solo show this entire year. Um, so it's, it's they've all been collaborations or, you know, or parts of a group thing. So yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see 